We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. Great to have you all with us today, both those here in our gymnasium, as well as those listening at KFUO 850 AM and worldwide at KFUO.org. For those that are in the gym, we have sheets with the scripture readings uh, over on the side. You might want to pick one of those up. We'll continue in our tradition here in this class of taking a look at the scripture lessons that will be assigned for next Sunday, so for Sunday, October 7, in most of our churches. Just a little aside, this is a big day for us here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. For those who are listening to us and those listening online, uh, our pastor or senior pastor of 20 years, Pastor David Smith, is retiring today. Today is his final day with us and is preaching at all the morning services. And so we thank God for not only his 20 years of service here at St. Paul's, but also 40 years total service in the pastoral ministry uh, at uh, St. Luke's in Starkville, Mississippi, at uh, Christ Memorial Lutheran Church here in St. Louis, at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and then finally here with us at St. Paul's. So a special day for us here this day. With that then, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the blessings you shower down upon us as your people. Above all, we pray thanking you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, for his life and death and resurrection once again on our behalf. And we thank you, as Pastor Smith had said today, that throughout his ministry, his touchstone has been to preach nothing among us but Christ and him crucified. We pray your continued blessings upon Pastor Smith and his family as they begin this new chapter in their lives. We pray that you will continue to be a blessing to them, even as they will continue to be a blessing in your church. We pray your blessing also upon us here as we study your word this day. May your Holy Spirit not only be present, but also guide us and direct us in our study that we might continue to grow in our knowledge of you and your will for us as your people. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you will clearly see a connection today as we look at the lessons between the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson. Remember, those are the ones that traditionally are connected thematically. And the connection today will be marriage. And when we get into uh, the Gospel lesson, actually divorce also is going to come in. So the, the overarching theme is marriage and then Divorce. We're going to have the institution of marriage by God in the Old Testament lesson, the book of Genesis. And then in the Gospel lesson, the Pharisees are going to try to trick Jesus or trap Jesus by asking him a question about divorce. Okay? So we'll take the lessons in that order. We'll start with the Old Testament lesson. Then we're going to jump to the Gospel lesson. And then we'll take the Epistle lesson, simply because those two Old Testament and Gospel lessons are connected thematically. All right, so let's take a look, first of all, we'll read through Genesis 1, or I'm sorry, Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, and then we'll go back and, and talk more about it, take a look at it a little bit uh, closer. So Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, you'll hear this uh, read at many weddings. Uh, it's one of the most popular Old Testament lessons read at a wedding, except for verse 25. We usually leave verse 25 uh, out, but uh, we stop with the institution of marriage there uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, all right, let's go back now. Uh, you know, first of all, the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I often like to think of it, if you're a, a journalist or you're reading a newspaper, there's a, there's a kind of a practice of, in the first paragraph, kind of giving the whole story, and then starting in the second paragraph, giving more details. And actually, Genesis 1 is kind of like that. We get the whole story. In fact, we get God all the way through the six days of creation and resting on the seventh day. And then in chapter 2, we pick up more detail with regard to what happened in all of this. And that's what we have here. In particular, more detail with his creation of man, generally speaking, Adam and Eve, of course. Okay? So this is kind of filling in more detail now as to how God did everything he, said, everything he did in chapter 1. Right? Now, it's kind of interesting to start off. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone or by himself. Now, remember, in chapter 1, every one of the, at the end of every one of the days of creation, God looks out over what he has done and says what? It is good, right? And after the sixth day, it is very good, okay? So, uh, and, and that is, that good, that word good in Hebrew, is, is, it doesn't mean just mediocre. It means uh, exactly the way he wanted it, okay? But then, curiously, we start uh, chapter 2, and we, we see here that something is not good, and it doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that something was defective or bad that God made. It just means something was not complete yet. It wasn't finished yet, okay? And this fact was that man was alone. There was not a, as it says here, uh, it is not good that man should be alone by himself. Now, was man totally alone at this point? No. Who, who did, or what, rather, did, did man have all around him? All the animals, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the animals on the land. But for, uh, the, the one thing is, he did not have, it says there, uh, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I want to just say that the word helper could, I guess, to some people, communicate something inferior. You know, it's like sort of, I'll make, uh, uh, we think of a helper as something uh, less than the person that they help sometimes. That's not what God means here. 
Uh, it literally, it, you could translate it a companion or somebody, somebody, this is kind of a, in the Hebrew, it kind of comes out this way, somebody who is complementary but different, okay? Like him in many ways, but still not the same as him, different from him, okay? And so it's not good that man has just all these animals, but there's nobody like him around. He's all by himself, okay? So I will make a helper or a complementary person, something, someone like him, but still different. So in verse 19, we go back to how we got to this point. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air. So notice it's out of the ground that God is making these animals, all these creatures. And notice who gets to name the animals. Adam gets to name them. They didn't even have a name at this point, which kind of goes along with what God is going to tell Adam and Eve, and that is to have dominion or have control over the creatures and the creation. Okay? And so he names them. Uh, and everything is going along fine. In verse 20, we get the, he gives names to all the livestock, the birds of heaven, every beast of the field. But then there's a problem still. But for Adam... There was not found, again, a, a, a companion, a complementary uh, being for him. Uh, and so notice there, God causes a deep sleep. Now, this, is, this word here in Hebrew is different for the normal word of sleep. This is a big, deep sleep. Uh, the only other time, or a lot of times when this word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's when God comes to the prophets and almost puts them in a deep sleep and gives them a vision. Okay? So this is more than just he kind of has him doze off for a little bit. This is a deep, deep sleep. And notice what he does. He uh, then, while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up or uh, built up the place where it was with flesh. And the rib God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I'll just say here, notice the oneness between the man and the woman. The woman is actually made from the man. It's not that God went out and did, took some other raw material. He actually makes the man out of the woman, which makes uh, verse 24 even more significant, that they shall be one flesh. That's exactly, in a sense, that's exactly how he made woman. They were one flesh or taken out of his flesh. Now, I always have to chuckle uh, at, verse, uh, at verse 23. I, wouldn't you love to see the look on Adam's face when, when Eve comes? You can almost feel the excitement. You know, Adam's he's just been looking at all these animals, you know. And, uh, and finally, you can almost hear this at last, you know. Or, or this one, it, actually in the Hebrew, this one, this time, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You know, Adam has seen all these animals paraded past him. And he finally, this one, this time, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, you know? And so you can just sense the, the sense of excitement uh, that he feels when he first sees Eve uh, that, that God has uh, created specifically for him. You know, when you think about it, uh, isn't it amazing that the God, of, uh, the creator of everything, the God of the universe, is here, in this case, serving Adam and, you know, he gave him the creation to start with, the beautiful creation to start with. And now he cares for him in a sense of providing this companion for him, okay? Then um, 
she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In Hebrew, there's a little play on words here. The word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. And so she shall be called uh, isha because she was taken out of ish. So there's a little play on words there uh, in the Hebrew. Um, and notice again, uh, therefore, a, because God has done this, because she is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother. Do we have any fathers or mothers yet at this point in the, in the Bible? No. So this is prescriptive now for the future. God is establishing the way it's going to be. A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall uh, hold fast, or some translations have cling to or hold on to, grasp on to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, okay? And again, notice we're kind of going back full circle. They were, in a sense, they were one flesh. He takes the rib out, makes her. Now, when they come together in this special relationship, they are one flesh. Now, the one flesh does not only refer to a physical oneness, but also a spiritual and an emotional oneness as well. So they are, they are to be, as I said, like one another in almost every way, yet still different from him. It's a wonderful relationship that God establishes here. And um, just to talk about this a little bit, when, uh, when I meet with couples that are going to get married at some time in the future, uh, I talk about this verse, a man leaving his father and his mother and clinging to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, is God saying there to the man, you should abandon your parents and never uh, have anything to do with them ever again? No, obviously not. Uh, it's the same God who gives the commandment to what? To honor your father and your mother, right? So that's not what we're saying here. But physically, leave your father and your mother. In other words, now, as special as that relationship has been and still is with your parents, who is to be, to the man, who is to be your number one concern? Your wife. Now, it doesn't happen, I don't, I don't know if it happens as much anymore, because children are getting married a little bit older than they once did. But I've seen more than one example of parents, uh, it's more on the guy's side, I would say, at least in my experience, it's been more on the guy's side, where mom and dad haven't quite got get through their head yet that their son is to have his wife now as the number one concern. And unfortunately, the guy hasn't gotten it through his head yet either. And it can cause real problems in a marriage if his mom and dad, or just his mom sometimes, quite frankly, uh, is still trying to run things. And the wife feels like she is second or third string uh, when it comes to even making decisions, where he spends his time, what he is doing. I mean, it can get to be a real problem. And so I always talk with couples about this, that, uh, you know, as special as your relationship is with your parents, and God is not saying now, again, dishonor your parents, but you have a brand new relationship here as husband and wife, and this is God's will that you now make one another your top priority. 
And sometimes the guy, as I say, it may be necessary for the guy to tell his parents this. It's a hard thing to, to say to them, but that, you know, I can't be over here five of the seven days of the week, and, you know, I need to be with my wife. And I can't be doing all this over here. I have things that I need to get done there. And, you know, I appreciate your counsel, but my wife and I will decide how we're going to spend our money. And, you know, things, things of that nature. I mean, it can really get... It, let me just see a show of hands. Have you ever heard of a case like this, cases like this? Yeah, yeah. It can really happen. And so here is God's counsel in this, and I, I try always to, to make couples aware of that. Um, secondly, um, we don't use these verses just because God created Adam for Eve specifically. We would not use this as a proof text to say that there is only one possible husband for each wife and only one possible wife for each husband. In other words, we, we, I know people like to think romantically that, that God created my spouse just for me, but we don't use this as a proof text. Now, certainly God can be involved and is involved in bringing couples together, we feel, and blessing a marriage that is brought together by him. But uh, I once heard a case where uh, the, the wife believed this, that uh, there is only one male that could possibly be her husband, and when they started having problems between the two of them, conflict between the two of them, guess what she did? She divorced him because he obviously couldn't be the one that God had created for her. And so that's how that logic can go sometimes. I thought, well, that, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. So again, uh, we don't use this uh, in order to do that. Uh, and the other thing I think comes through here pretty strongly, doesn't it? That, that God has created us for, to, to be in relationships with one another. And there is this special marriage relationship that he actually uh, created right as a, as a part of the fabric of his creation. But there is also the relationships we have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know, one of the things that is so ironic today in this age of online communication and electronic communication and social media, you know, we have more ways to communicate with people today than we ever have had in, in history, and yet we still hear about people that are lonely. You can be lonely even in a big group of people, can't you? And let's face it, you can also be lonely in a marriage, can't you? A marriage that is not as God had intended it. And there can be silence there and loneliness even within a marriage. But God has created us to be in relationship with one another. And you see that right at the beginning. It wasn't enough for Adam to be there all on his own, simply by himself. God makes a plan to stop, to... Uh, to uh, come up with something very different for him. All right. All right, let me stop there. So again, uh, husband-wife is the primary familial relationship, and God has it right in his own creation. So let me stop there. Any questions, comments, observations? Jan. Okay. Okay. Okay, so the comment was that the, the example I gave of the woman saying that there's only one person that God has in mind for me, and this can't be the person because we're having, we're having conflict. Uh, Jan is saying she thinks it's more 
more prevalent than, than we might think in America. Okay? All right. Any other comments or questions? Yes. Todd. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah, the point was that this happens in a day. If we go back and again say we're filling in here what was in Genesis chapter 1 on the sixth day, and Adam wasn't out there for a long time. Uh, and of course, after this is all done, then everything is good, right? Everything is exactly as God had intended it. Okay? Anything else? Any other comments? Yes? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. Was this, did God have all this planned out ahead of time, or was he sort of making it up as he went? Is that kind of what you were, yeah, it almost, it almost seems that way, doesn't it? When he says, it's not good that he's alone, uh, I've never heard it expressed that he was making it up as he went. Uh, we usually generally tend to think that he actually had this planned out, and he's simply giving the reason here that he's creating woman in this way, that he doesn't want man to be alone. Yeah. But, yeah, you could almost read it that way, that the guy says, oops, uh, you know, I, uh, it's not good, I've got to do something here. But we think he had it planned out. It's just that he's, again, he's giving the rationale or the reason for, for why he creates woman in this way. Okay? Anything else? All right, we're going to pause here, and I want you to observe how beautiful this marriage relationship is. In its, in its ideal form, God has done it perfectly. Okay? Because what's going to happen in the very next chapter? They're going to fall into sin. We all know the story. And what happened to this one flesh relationship as soon as they fell into sin? God comes looking for them, says, Adam, where are you? And Adam you know, says, I was, well, I was uh, afraid and I hid because I was naked. What does the end of our lesson say? They were naked and not ashamed. Okay? But then God comes to Adam and hold, tries to hold him accountable and says, you know, have you eaten from the tree I told, told you not to eat from? And does Adam say, oh, yes, Lord, I confess my sin. It was my fault. I take full responsibility? No. Who does he, who does he, he blames it on? It was the woman that you gave me. So look at there, in, in this short a time, that one flesh relationship has been torn apart, hasn't it, by sin, to the point where Adam will now turn on Eve and actually turns on God in the same sentence, doesn't he? It's, 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 it's uh, her fault and it's your fault. If you wouldn't have given her, uh, put her here, we'd be just fine, right? And again, remember his reaction, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So, I mean, this whole thing... Uh, you know, it was so beautiful at, and, and uh, perfect at the end of chapter 2, and unfortunately we didn't have very long, just very next chapter, and we're in trouble, and that, that relationship is in trouble, okay? All right, so now the gospel lesson is actually going to deal uh, with that trouble, so to speak, when we talk about the topic of marriage and divorce, 
And let's just uh, read through, well, I'll tell you, this is a little bit longer, so maybe we better not read the whole thing first. We'll just uh, take this and, and uh, kind of verse by verse. Let me just give you a little context here first. Uh, all the way back into the Old Testament, uh, divorce was happening, and divorce, by the time of the New Testament, there was, in the, especially in the first century, it seems, there was quite a debate going on about how, quote-unquote, easy it should be to get a divorce. And the Pharisees, of all people, were on the side of it being extremely easy, to the point where a man could divorce a woman for just about anything, didn't like the way she looked at him, didn't like the food preparation, or just about, it was, it was ridiculous. And... Uh, in, it's in that environment, there was a teacher named Hillel who was teaching this, and he was actually, I'll, I'll, we'll, in a minute, we'll see the Old Testament passage that they were taking out of context to justify how easy it was to get a divorce, okay? And so the Pharisees are going to come up, it's in this environment, they're going to come up, and they're going to, as it says here, test him, or actually try to trap him and get him into this controversy, okay? Okay. So, uh, verse 2 there, we're in Mark 10, verse 2. And Pharisees came up in order to test or trap him. So that's their purpose in coming up to him. And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, you could say Jesus could have taken an easy way out here and said, yes, it is, because it was lawful at that time. But he chooses to uh, go a different route here with the Pharisees. He says, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So the Pharisees, they're referring back to Moses as being able to uh, allow someone to write a certificate of divorce and send the woman away. So the Pharisees are thinking, if we're quoting Moses, what are they probably thinking? Yeah, we, we, yeah, this is like the authority of the Old Testament, they're thinking. So we're on good grounds here. This is what Moses said. Now, actually, for those of you that have a Bible, uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, is uh, what they used to use as sort of their proof text for this. Deuteronomy 24, starting with verse 1. And again, this is what the Pharisees would have been referring to when they said Moses allowed, because Moses, of course, is the author of Deuteronomy. So starting in verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and here it is, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, verse 2, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord." And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, the point of this passage was to set down the rule 
And this is a, sort of the pattern here as, that is set up. If a woman is sent away by a man, there's a divorce there, and she marries another man, and there's a divorce, or it says even a death here, which we find a, a little odd, she cannot go back and marry that first man. And that's, don't, don't ask me why. That is simply the way God sets it up in the Old Testament. That's what that passage was written to do. The Pharisees, though, are using it to say, see, Moses allowed uh, for a certificate of divorce, and that justifies divorce being very easy in Jesus' time. And that's the side they want him to take. Okay? Now, going on, Jesus is going to go back even further. He goes back to Moses and what Moses said in verse 5 now of our gospel lesson. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Jesus is Jesus saying here, yeah, I agree um, that divorce should be easy because Moses said that. He's saying, what, what's the cause or what's the reason that Moses allowed it? What's he saying? Yeah, their hardness of heart, it was happening. They were going to do it anyway. Okay? It's kind of, that's a good way to put it. And, you know, uh, just pausing here, what is God's plan in creation? One man, one woman for life. Okay? Now, we could talk about divorce, but the other, the other thing that has always puzzled me is polygamy in the Old Testament. God seems to have just let this go. I mean, even David and Solomon, you know, people who were uh, highest of profile. And I've always, I've always kind of concluded the same thing about polygamy, that it was just rampant and happening, and God simply didn't, it seems, did not take retribution because of it, right? But look at what, look at what happens every, when, when uh, remember Abra, Abraham and Sarah? How there was a marriage there, and then what did they, uh, Sarah, it was Sarah's idea, right? She's going to, yeah, so take, take, a, take her to be your wife, right? And you just see how every time we divert from that, there are problems or there are issues. So it's not to say that God is pleased with what's happening, but he let it go in the Old Testament. And Jesus says here, it's not that this was pleasing, it's because of their own hardness of heart at that time that he allowed it to occur, okay? Now, going on, uh, now he quotes, now Jesus goes back even further, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Important thing here that, you know, today with uh, gay marriage and everything happening, it's interesting. Sometimes those who are proponents of gay marriage will say, well, you know, that's just that Old Testament stuff. And, uh, you know, we're, we're more sophisticated, we're, we're more advanced today. But look at what Jesus just did in our, in our gospel lesson. He just affirmed uh, marriage in the original way, a man and a woman, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, from the creation, and he is lending his uh, support 
uh, his, uh, his um, uh, validation, you might say, or his approval, I should say, of exactly what was happening there. So if you can't just say it was just the Old Testament. You've got to say, well, uh, that, you know, Jesus said this as well. And that this doesn't get said a lot in these uh, discussions back and forth on this. Uh, you're, going, you're actually going against what Jesus was affirming here as well. But that's a side, that's a side light. Okay, so, uh, and then he says uh, in verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So it is, again, it is God's desire that man or humans not separate what God has brought together in marriage. Okay? Now here comes the part that is really uh, very, very difficult to hear. And we'll try to explain this. I have a way, an approach I want to take on this. Uh, verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So the disciples, this happens uh, quite a bit, that Jesus will say something out in public, and then the disciples go back with him, and they ask him privately about it. Because you can tell it's kind of uh, bothering them, or they're, they're, they're not sure. And verse 11. And he, Jesus, said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. That would be his, the first wife. The her is the first wife. So whoever divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery against her, the first wife. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery as well. So that is a pretty hard verse to hear. Now, this is the way I usually think of this and try to explain this, see if you agree or not, that we can't take this out of the context of, uh, of what is happening here. Again, divorce is extremely easy at that time, so if you were to think of this as Jesus saying, whoever divorces his wife for no good reason or for not, uh, you know, so, so easily and casually and, and uh, just about for any minuscule minor reason and marries another, commits adultery against the first wife. In other words, he, it's for a reason that should not be and is, is ridiculously easy, commits adultery against the first wife. And the same with the, the uh, woman who divorces the man. Usually, I have to say back at that time, it was the other way around. It was the man who seemed to have the vast majority of the power to simply dismiss a woman uh, almost without cause. Okay? So that is the way that I usually explain this verse. Now, this is coming up next week in our gospel lesson. And I know that uh, here at St. Paul's, Pastor Thompson is going to be preaching on something to do with marriage and divorce. And whenever this, and, and other, there are other sections like this, whenever they're just read without any explanation whatsoever, I always feel kind of bad because I think people can leave the church that, that Sunday, thinking something different, and it's not explained to them. You hope that maybe they'll call and ask to talk to one of us about it, and we would be happy to do that, of course. But you can't, you know, when you're reading the scripture lessons, you can't stop and say, well, now we're going to have about five minutes of explanation about these two verses. But I told Pastor Thompson this morning, you know, I said, we're doing this in Bible class, and I said, uh, I don't know what you're going to say next week, but this is pretty tough. These are pretty tough passages to, to do. And uh, ironically, next Sunday is the Sunday we're going to be 
giving special recognition to all of the uh, couples, spouses, who have been married 50 years or more. And had, we did this several years ago. They'll be coming up. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an interesting Sunday next, <laughs> next Sunday. Uh, you can stay with the Genesis text and not get into any of that. Uh, I don't know what Pastor Thompson is going to do, so that may pique your interest to be here next Sunday and see how he uh, uh, deals with all of this. But it, it is, uh, I will be the first to grant, it is a hard, uh, hard lesson for us, for us to hear. Jan? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Right. The comment was that uh, from notes from a previous study that this is the first time a rabbi would give credence to the woman, support the fact that a woman has that, that quote-unquote right. Although, again, in the social uh, setting of that time, unfortunately, the man had seemed to have 99 out of 100 points in terms of power and authority. And secondly, yeah, it's a good cross-reference. Remember that uh, the whole beheading of John the Baptist came as a result of the speaking out against the adulterous relationship that Herodias uh, had. Exactly, exactly. Okay? All right. Uh, now, uh, so let me just take a moment here uh, to comment. Uh, obviously, no one is pleased when divorce occurs, and we try to deal with it as pastors in a very individual, and I hope compassionate way, we try to at least. Uh, our goal is always, when a couple does come and see us, to try and bring about a reconciliation, if at all possible. Uh, there are times, and we rejoice when this happens, that both of the spouses do want to try to bring about a reconciliation in their relationship, and we try to support that in every way we can with uh, scripture, first of all, talking about marriage from God's perspective, and then uh, I know it's our practice here that we will try to refer them to a Christian marriage counselor who's especially trained uh, in this area. It's not that we don't, we won't be meeting with them, but we try to recommend, and we do have people that we know of that we, can, we feel we can trust in referring them uh, to uh, them for help. Uh, there are times, however, unfortunately, where one of the two simply is not interested and has made their mind up that they are not going to pursue any reconciliation. And that those are, are hard cases uh, to deal with, obviously. And then there are times when, uh, even at the end of the, the dealing uh, with, with counseling and, and reconciliation, just is not happening. And at that point, again, we try to work with both husband and wife and try to bring about the best possible end result, especially for their spiritual lives uh, when this occurs. And again, obviously, nobody is, this is uh, tragic when it happens, but we, we do our level best uh, in, in the midst of some difficult situations, okay? Uh, let me stop here. We're going to move on to a uh, child, uh, this, this kind of an odd uh, connection here. We move to a whole different subject here with Jesus. But any comments or questions before? Because this is kind of a we're leaving the marriage and divorce part here. Okay. All right. So let's go to verse ten. And in uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Verse thirteen. And they. Now we don't know exactly who the they uh, would be here, except pro probably some uh, people around there. It seems who were still around. 
And they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So the disciples here are keeping the children away. They are banning the children from coming to Jesus. But when Jesus saw it, verse 14, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such uh, belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So this, again, is kind of countercultural for Jesus here. The rabbis at that time simply did not spend time with children. They were thought to be not worth the time for a rabbi to, to have any uh, action with. And uh, they, I think, uh, actually, Vicar Wade pointed this out the last sermon that he had here, that they were thought, children were thought to be uh, didn't know enough, they were uh, dependent, and they uh, were a lot of trouble and the rabbis just wouldn't take the time with them. We obviously have a much different uh, viewpoint today. But that was the, the prevalent uh, uh, theme at the time. And Jesus, and so the disciples here are probably thinking that, uh, you know, the, these children just aren't worth the time. Don't, let's not have them bother Jesus. Let's just, you know, move on from here. But notice Jesus, again, counters this very strongly. Uh, Do not hinder them, Jesus says. Uh, we could spend some time talking about parents today, unfortunately, hindering their children from coming to Jesus, right? Um, the, the phrase that we have heard sometimes used is, well, I'm not going to have my child baptized because I'm going to wait till they get older, and what? You can almost finish the sentence for me. What? Let them decide. Let the children decide, right? And uh, now, I would say, uh, first of all, uh, theologically speaking, does anybody decide to follow Jesus? No. It's the Holy Spirit working in them to begin with. And, you know, my usual uh, comeback for that uh, would be to say, well, do you uh, let your children decide when they're going to go to school? Do you let your children decide when they're going to eat? Do you let your children decide when they're going to go to bed? Do you let your children decide when they're going to go to the doctor? Oh, no. But when eternal life is hanging in the balance, then we'll wait and let the child decide for themselves. So again, uh, parents, you know, we talk about this as a responsibility of the parent to bring them up in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord, not to stand by passively, or unfortunately even worse, to be a hindrance to them coming to the Lord. And um, say this just in terms of, of fathers in particular, there are some new studies out that, uh, you know, they're trying to find, they were trying to find in the studies uh, what's the likelihood of a child continuing in the faith if, the, if just the mother is there, it's pretty strong, at least the mother's bringing them to the church and so on, but if mother and father are there, it goes up exponentially. And the other thing about it is, father not only there, but actually participating, actually singing the hymns, actually bowing his head in prayer, not just there, kind of staring at, at, the, at the front. I'd say it's, I'd rather have them there, first of all, but actually participating. Why? Because the child sees this, right? And uh, feels that, okay, dad really believes this. Mom really believes this. So the whole idea of bringing the children 
uh, to the Savior is something, again, we could talk a lot about. Uh, truly, truly, now, what do you think Jesus means in verse 15? Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom or the reigning of God in your life like a child? Non-questioning, yep. Not working for it. Simple, we sometimes talk about a simple childlike faith, right? And trust. And that's a good comment. You know, when you think about it, uh, in addition to that simple childlike faith and trust, children are totally dependent, aren't they? Uh, Especially at a very young age. When they get older, maybe not as much. But at a very young age, probably the age of these children, they are totally dependent upon adults. And the same thing here. In the kingdom of God, we are totally dependent upon our God. It's nothing that we bring, nothing we do for ourselves, but we are totally dependent upon him. So it's interesting that Jesus uses what they would have thought is a negative, these, these children, and uses it as a positive to teach something about life in the kingdom of God that we all receive it as a child with a simple childlike faith and trust and realize our total dependence upon God. And don't, don't pretend to come with something that we bring to it, okay? And notice he took, him, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And, you know, it's interesting that, that Mark puts that in almost for extra emphasis at the end, that here's a rabbi who not only would take time to talk to children, he actually embraces them in his arms. And, uh, you know, what a, what a great picture of the love of Jesus for all people. And again, once more, just like he did so many times, even those who in their day were not thought to be worth his time, right? Along with the, chief, uh, with the uh, tax collectors and other public centers, Children would be in that same boat, unfortunately. Not worth the rabbi's time. Well, they are worth Jesus' time. Okay? All right. Let me stop here. Any comments on this little section dealing with children? All right. Now we'll move to the epistle lesson then. And this is going to be from Hebrews chapter 2. We'll see how far we get in this. There's an optional longer reading. uh, And I put it in here. No extra charge. But we're we're going to... do the longer. We may not get through the whole thing. So now, starting, we won't read it through first because it's quite long. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, so what do you do with the first, uh, if you're going to start here and you read the word therefore, what's a good thing to do? Go back and see what was right before because this is the, like the next step. So you've got to think, okay, what came before? And if we look back in Hebrews 1 uh, near the end, It's talking about how the angels were messengers in serving God's people, okay? And so now we start verse 2, verse chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So let's stop right there. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The what, what have they heard? What have Christians heard? The gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ and him crucified, just like we talked about this morning uh, in worship. That's what they have heard. They heard, Je- they heard it from Jesus through the apostles, that the good news of the gospel. 
Now, what does it mean, you think, that he says we better pay attention, close attention to it? What do you think? What's that? I'm, I'm, well, maybe they have not been paying. You, can you, uh, the difference between simply hearing something and really paying attention to it, right? And so, you know, you can sit in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and uh, I, I guess be there and hear words, but if your mind is somewhere else and, and it's not really in your heart, he said, pay close attention to it, focus in on it. In other words, this is important, lest we, at the end, he says at the end of the verse, lest we drift away from it. And that word for drift away is used of a boat that is tied to a mooring. And the tie comes loose, and what happens to the boat? Kind of drifts away out into the, out into the waters, and pretty soon it's gone. And... Obviously, there's one obvious conclusion here. Do we as Lutherans believe in once saved, always saved? In other words, once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are guaranteed you are going to be saved, and there is no possibility of falling away. No. Uh, that actually is more of a Calvinistic uh, doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. It's the P in the tulip, uh, five, point Cal five points of Calvinism. We don't have enough time to get into that now. We'll, we'll save that for another study. But we do not believe that, not only because we see people drifting away from the faith, unfortunately, but because the Bible in a number of spots, including this one, certainly indicates that it is possible to drift away. And uh, boy, how unfortunate that is. Sometimes we see people that drift away, and then what happens? Something happens in their life, or somebody has um, an influence in their life as a Christian, and they come back. And we re always rejoice when that happens. You know, Jesus talks about leaving the 99 and going after the one and bringing it back rejoicing. So we rejoice when that happens. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. And so it is possible to drift away. And notice here, to prevent that from happening, what does the writer of the Hebrews want them to do? Pay close attention to the Word of God, what they have heard. Pay close attention to it. Be in a Bible class like this one here, right? Pay close attention to it, okay? Now, going on, verse 2. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression uh, or disobedience received a just retribution, the, what he's going to do here, the writer of the Hebrews, is going to do a contrast between the message received from angels, which is a reference to Mount Sinai, and I'll try to explain that real quickly, and the gospel. So the message received by the angels is the uh, God's pronouncements at Mount Sinai in the law. Uh, we don't have enough time to look it up now, but Deuteronomy, back in Deuteronomy again, 33, 1 through 3, if you want to write that in there, that is a section in the Old Testament that talks about what happened at Mount Sinai, and it talks about God coming out of thousands and thousands of angels and giving his pronouncements at Mount Sinai. So what the writer is doing here is saying, if that message back in the Old Testament given through angels was reliable, how much more reliable is the message we have from the very Son of God? So that's what he means there. Uh, starting at verse 2, for since the message declared by angels, so God spoke via the thunder and in the midst of angels, 
proved to be reliable, in other words, it was God's very word. And every transgression or every sin or disobedience received a just retribution or a fitting retribution. In other words, every time there was disobedience to that word, it received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, if we ignore the gospel. And it'll be even a greater punishment, won't it? In fact, it will be an eternal punishment versus the just retribution that they got in the Old Testament. It was declared at, uh, let's see, declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So this, this gospel message was, was declared first by Christ and then by those who heard it. Now, those who heard it would be the, not only them, but the apostles, the disciples, correct. Uh, so we've heard it from Christ. We've heard it from the apostles. And verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So not only did Christ say it, not only did the apostles say it, but there were signs and wonders that took place that God used to, you might say, give weight to this word. Now let's stop for just a second. Not too many seconds left. Uh, how many, uh, what, just name a couple signs or wonders that God used to attest to his word as being sure and certain. What would be some examples? Raising Lazarus from the dead after he's been there four days and Jesus says merely, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes out alive. What else? A uh, Abraham. Oh, Abraham and Isaac back in the Old Testament. Yeah, okay. The sacrifice that points ahead to... The, the sacrifice to come, okay? What else? Pentecost. That's the one we think of as uh, a good one because the Holy Spirit is mentioned here. And you've got, remember, the wind comes and the tongues of fire and the disciples are speaking in other known languages at that time. You know, and, and they, that gives... Uh, so the, the purpose of miracles is not just to point to the miracle, but to point to something even greater, and that's the message of Christ, Okay. All right, we'll just go a little bit further here. For, uh, verse 5, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and this is a quote from Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Just a real quick word. Have you ever gone out at night and maybe you're out in a camping area or you're away from the city, let's just put it that way, and looked up at the stars and the whole solar system up there? And how do you end up feeling when you, when you do that? Yeah, pretty, <laughs> a little speck. You realize how totally insignificant you are to this vast creation. And in Psalm 8, that's kind of what the psalmist is saying there, you know. Uh, he says there, what is man that you are mind, even mindful of him? And again, what a testament to the, to the grace and love of God that he is not only mindful of us, but he sends his own son and sacrifices him for us. For us insignificant little specks in his whole creation, he goes to all of this trouble and, and exerts all of this planning and execution perfectly in and through his son, Jesus Christ, okay? So that's probably a good place to stop. Uh, so we'll end on a higher note. But uh, anyway, 
um, some interesting lessons uh, for next week, and uh, we'll see how they are uh, preached upon and uh, done in our worship service. Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.